anytime you are using somebody, you place a value on them that's dependent upon not who they are, but what they do. And that's obviously going to change. And none of us want to be in a relationship like that. So what if instead of pursuing fame or a wider influence as a leader, we pursued a deeper influence? Making that shift will change the very dynamics of our relationship with the people in our organization. You just heard a soundbite from Greg Tonegal, a coach who has made that shift in his coaching. He stopped pursuing winning and started pursuing deeper relationships and a lasting impact in the lives of others. And as he says in our podcast today, winning ensued. In the last five years, he has won three NAIA championships and they don't look like they're going to be slowing down at all anytime soon. In the next two episodes, we will be talking with Greg Tunnigal, the father of six children and the coach of Indiana Wesleyan basketball team for the last 15 years. And we are going to learn how to deepen our influence and how he built the I Am Third culture at Indiana Wesleyan. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast brought to you by Thrive on Challenge. I'm JP Nurbin, joined by my friend and co-host Nate Sanderson. Each week in about 30 minutes, we discuss important principles and strategies of transformational leadership. At Thrive on Challenge, we help coaches to raise the standards and strengthen the relationships in their program because we know this type of culture produces better leaders, better people, and better results. To learn more about how we can help you, go to thriveonchallenge.com where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter and get the coaching notes to every episode of this podcast. You're listening to episode 149, The Pursuit of Deeper Influence with our guest, Greg Tunnigal. Coach, thanks for joining me and I on the podcast today. I want to start with a question that's going to give us not just some insight into your history and your background as a coach, but I think it's going to help us to understand your mission, your very purpose as a coach. You played basketball at a story Division I program, Valparaiso. After a good career there, you went immediately into coaching at Indiana Wesleyan, which is an NAIA school. What brought you from Valparaiso to Indiana Wesleyan? So I grew up in Indiana. I've always considered myself a Hoosier from, from day one, which means I've enjoyed some pretty spectacular basketball. And I played at LaPorte High School and, and went 30 minutes down the road to Valparaiso University, following in the footsteps of Bryce Drew. Um, for those of you, if you recall, Bryce hit that big shot in, in 97 to go to the Sweet 16. So I finished up my playing days at Valpo and uh, really was just feeling tugged to go into coaching. Uh, I couldn't imagine, you know, pursuing a job in, in anything else. But but like any coach who's trying to get in, you, you'll put your feet, you know, in any door that's even cracked partly open. Well, my brother, younger brother, I had three brothers. My younger one was playing at Indiana Wesleyan at the time. And because I was playing at Valpo and, and coaching and our seasons overlapped, I never visited him once. And I get this random call from him. This was like November. Uh, and he says, hey, I, th I think they're going to let our coach go. You should apply. And I kind of laughed and said, you know, I'm I'm the, the graduate assistant here at Valparaiso University. They're not going to hire me as a head coach. And he said, hey, you should think about it. But anyways, we got busy and months went by and um, the job did open up. And I think it was February. And uh, once again, he said, hey, you should apply. So I said, I'll, I'll get some coaching experience. I'll apply. Well, long story short, uh, Coach Homer Drew got on the phone, made some calls, got me an interview. 
I got familiar with Indiana Wesleyan and I just saw so much potential and it, it really excited me. I wasn't focused on level at the time. I just wanted an opportunity to, to have an influence and Indiana Wesleyan seemed like that. And I wouldn't have hired myself at that time. I'm 24. I don't know a thing, but man, I was full of passion and energy and uh, I'm thankful they gave me that opportunity. Well, coach, you got your first opportunity to have your own program at age 24 and you've been doing this for a while since then. In what ways would you say that that you're the same as when you started? Maybe your philosophies are the same. And in what ways have you kind of evolved over the years? Man, that's a great question. There are so many things that my now 40-year-old self wishes he could tell my 24-year-old <laughs> self. Um, you know, I think I think as a young coach, you have to go through those growing pains. And I certainly did. Unfortunately, I dragged a lot of players with me through those growing pains. Um, but I think one of the things I've learned over the years is is how much more powerful keeping things simple can be. You know, as a young coach, I think you want to you want to apply every principle and every coachingism and you want to share all those things, but I think you're just diluting the opportunity to really impact your players, both just schematically, you know, if you're just talking, hey, what what kind of schemes are we trying to put out there or if you're just talking, you know, from a leadership side of things and I think every year what I'm learning, I'm learning more and more about less and less. And I'm really drilling down and honing in on who I am as a coach. What are my gifts and abilities? What are my weaknesses? And not, not being afraid or denying those weaknesses and playing more to my strengths as a coach. Coach, you've been at Indiana Wesleyan for 15 seasons now. And in the last five years alone, you've won three national championships for basketball. So I'm sure you've had many opportunities to move on to bigger programs with bigger budgets and bigger money and more fame and accolades. Why have you stayed at Indiana Wesleyan all these years? You know, I think, so going back to, to my younger coaching self, I, if I'm really honest, I think there was a time where I wanted to be famous. That, that was my goal in coaching. But over time, I think that's evolved. I just want to be influential. And as I've gotten older and had a family, I want to be famous in my home. But if I'm not famous outside of my home, I don't really care. And what I've learned actually kind of goes against what I've been told and, and maybe what the allure of coaching is. You know, there's this proverbial coaching ladder that everybody thinks you have to climb. The more you win, uh, you always take that next step. But we here at Indiana Wesleyan begin to ask the question, what, what if we wanted to pursue influence more than, you know, being famous? And, and to pursue influence would be depth would be the most important thing. Well, the way to have uh, depth in a program and relationships is to stay. And I think the longer we've stayed, the more roots we've put in the ground, the more opportunity we've we've had for influence. And we're starting to see that now, uh, more doors and more opportunities, more winning has been a part of that. And I think part of that is you just got to be comfortable in who you are. Um, I'm not saying, you, sh you know, everybody who climbs the ladder is, you know, doing it the wrong way by, by no means. But for me and my family, we have found a place that we love. Never have I woken up thinking I actually have a job. I mean, I. I get to pursue my passion, uh, which is coaching and, and, and what I call discipleship through coaching. So uh, I'm very thankful that I've chosen to remain here. And every year it gets better, to be honest with you. Well, I definitely resonate with that desire to climb the ranks as a young coach. But what I really love is how you said that what's more important than anything else in influence is depth, depth of influence. Many coaches look to widen their influence, not deepen their influence. So could you share a little bit more about what depth of influence looks like for you? Absolutely. I, I just think, we just think there's this pattern that 
if I'm going to, if I'm going to be influential, then I've got to move quickly and I've got to bounce around. But, but the reality is we, we don't maybe stay in a place long enough to really lay roots in the ground and, and to have a lasting impact. Um, you know, the world would tell you that we're going to be determined by our salary or by our status. And, and those can be good things, but they can also be fleeting things. Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, coaching is about relationships. And the way to, to have those relationships is to really to go in depth and, and to, to not necessarily move on right away and, and to develop those relationships. And, and I think what coaches find as they do that, um, it's, it's a rather rewarding way to coach because you're not always trying to get something out of your players or you're not always your players aren't commodities and you're not using them to advance uh, yourself, which can be easy to do. I mean, I did that early on, you know, I think I had sent the message. The players were here to help me win. And I had to learn through those growing pains that I'm here to help them and to develop them for the rest of their lives. I love how depth for you comes back to relationships. And I think you just made a great argument for staying at a place. If you want deeper relationships, especially when you have a good thing going, like you do at Indian Wesleyan. Now, as you talk about depth of influence and relationships, I'm very curious. I want to understand better how this clarity in your purpose and mission as a coach has influenced your behaviors. Because you mentioned earlier, as a young coach, you saw your players as commodities, something to help you advance in your career. When you coached from that place, what did that coach look like? What were some of those coaching behaviors? Well, I think it was, it was what was my ultimate aim? Um, and early on as a young coach, the ultimate aim is to win. Uh, because no matter where you're at, wherever you walk around, people usually ask one question the day after games. Did you win? You know, as a kid, it's the same thing. It might, my, I have younger kids. I have two boys that play basketball. They're 11 and 10. And everybody says, did you win? And the next question is, well, how many points did you score? And I don't know if we understand what we're doing to young people. We're subconsciously training to think that their value and identity is in two things, winning and scoring. So no, no wonder we all as coaches have this problem when we get players. All they want to do is score points and all they do is filter their success through themselves. And it kind of drives us crazy because we don't coach individuals. We coach teams. Uh, but it's the same thing in coaching, I think. You know, I walked into coaching and I, and I looked around and I saw 12 young men and I thought, man, these guys are going to help me get to where I need to go. Well, anytime you are using somebody, you place a value on them that's dependent upon not who they are, but what they do. And that's obviously going to change. And none of us want to be in a relationship like that. I mean, I, I'm married. I think you mentioned you were married. You know, if, if our wives treated us like that, I think we'd be pretty fed up with the relationship. But it's the same thing in coaching. When we can then get in a relationship where we don't think uh, of ourselves as being in the center of that relationship, but yet how do I how do I help other people? How do I position them to have success? The crazy thing is, not only do they have success, but I think I do also. And it's a much more fulfilling way to coach. I, I always say this. I think it's true. So I think I've, coaching is one of those professions. So many people want to get into coaching. People are dying to get into coaching. The level of interest in coaching is crazy, considering most coaches don't make a lot of money, right? Like, obviously, at the highest levels, they do. But at the same time, it's also one of the professions where I see some of the loneliest people and some of the most unsatisfied people because I think they got into it for the wrong reasons and they're constantly chasing, uh, you know, this elusiveness of well, if I just win, I'm going to be happy or if I just make more money, I'm going to be happy. But they never do. And I think a lot of it's because of how they view relationships and how they're using relationships to get there. I came across a quote uh, that you mentioned one time and I, I don't remember if it was on one of the other podcast episodes that we had listened to to get ready for this. But you talking about relationships, you said. 
one of the draws to, to coaching and building with your guys was being able to form relationships where basketball wasn't the driver. And I thought the driver of the relationship. And I thought, what a unique way to describe the influence, you know, and the effectiveness that you can have. You want to talk a little bit about just how you do that, because as a coach, you know, we're so driven by, as you mentioned, about outcomes and results and our records. And yet, and typically that's what's going to drive your conversation and a lot of your interactions with your players. But how do you do it where basketball's not the driver for those relationships? Yeah, I think I think it's it's embedded into our what we would we would call our I am third philosophy, which is God first, others second, yourself third. Which, when you first hear that, you would agree that that's rather uh, counterintuitive. Uh, our culture would say, "Hey, look, if you want to be good at something, or you want to be successful, you need to focus in on yourself, and you need to put yourself first. But we we what we would say is, if you want to be first, first find a way to be third. No, I've really confused everybody there. <laughs> none of us really believe that, right? My kids don't believe that. Every day, my kids uh, are only thinking of themselves. They have to be first. Whatever I have, they they have to get. If they don't, they feel like they're missing out. But but to tell them, look, if you first look out for the needs of others, I promise you, you'll get what you want, and so will they. So everybody wins. And at the end of the day, in our program, winning is something that is not pursued; it's ensued. And what I mean by that is we don't sit there every day and walk to our guys and say, hey, today we have to win. Today we have to be first. We're not obsessed with, with being the best, but it's going to be a cultural byproduct of, of who we are. And if we're going to be men of third, being we put God first and other people second, I think the byproduct of that is we end up being first. We give, our chance self, we give our, ourselves a chance to be successful. And the crazy thing is, We've been one of the most winningest programs in the entire country for the last 10 years. I think we're number two overall. We tied for national championships. But I only tell you that to say that's not our focus. That's the byproduct of what goes into that whole journey of becoming third. Yeah, that I am third culture is is really it's the stamp of your program. I feel like it's just everywhere. You go on your website, you see that. I was just curious what's the backstory on how you I, – Maybe you started it at that with at 24, but I imagine it came part of uh, uh, you instilled it or you developed that kind of mantra identity kind of later on down the road. Yeah, I think uh, just like any good idea or, uh, you know, invention usually comes out of frustration or adversity. And for me, like like you guys, probably I've been a part of some teams that were just not a great experience. Maybe they were. Uh, full of frustration. Maybe the team didn't reach its potential. And, and the common denominator has always been a, a me first focus, whether it was one guy on the team that all he cared about was himself, or maybe it was some parents we were dealing with and they could only see things through the lens of their own son. It was this me first focus that really got in the way of our team reaching its potential. And after I got done playing and coaching at Valpo, I ended up at this camp. It's called Canacuck. Uh, Christian sports camp. It's an amazing place, but they have what's called the I am third philosophy or the I'm third philosophy. And I was immersed in that culture for a complete summer. And I remember saying, man, if I ever become a head coach, this is, this is the, this is the culture I want my teams to embody. But at the same time, I was like conflicted, like, really, I'm supposed to be a, a competitive winning coach. And I'm supposed to tell my guys that we're not supposed to focus on a winning. Like I wrestled with that for a long time. And, and to be honest, I still do. I mean, I've seen the results. I've seen how successful it is when you get your mind and focus off of yourself. 
but at the same time, it doesn't make it easy. And, and think over the 15 years that I've been here, we continue to grow and learn what does it truly mean to be I am third? And we're a Christian school, so the, the first emphasis is, is pursuing God. And, and I think you can't pursue others until you do that because we, we truly do find uh, our identity in Christ first. And then after that, we can then begin to pursue the betterment of others. But to teach that in basketball has been really fun. That that's a learning experience. I mean, every every year I think we're learning new ways to do that and and to be practical about it. Um, I hope people watch us play, and what they say is, they just play different, you know. Or they they look at our bench and they just say, "Wow, you know, those guys on the other bench they're not pouting, but they're going crazy for their teammates." There's something different about that group, and hopefully, what they're seeing on the floor is that it's a byproduct of what does it mean to pursue I am third establishing that identity is probably not done just once and then you've got it you know it's something you have to do every year i think any coach that's been in it long enough realizes having a strong culture or identity one year does not guarantee us one the next year so what would you say is the single most important thing that you do every year to implement that mm. identity or or kind of drive that home with your players well, here's what I wish I, I could have known as a 24-year-old coach, but my teams can only become uh, and go to a place that I've already gone myself as the leader. You know, early on, I try to stand up in front of my teams and say, hey, th- this, is, this is where we're going, and this is what I want you to become. This is what I want you to do. But until they've seen that in me or until they've experienced that in me, it's hard for me to take them. And so really, I've got to be out front and growing as this. And that's hard as a leader every year to say, I'm going to pursue third, even though I'm going to be in this position of authority. I'm going to be, you know, my status is above yours. But at the same time, I'm here to serve you guys. I'm here to lead you in humility, which is harder and harder to do as you get older. But I think the fruit comes more and more each and every year. And as as you alluded to, every year we have to reestablish that because we're graduating guys. But thankfully, I think we're now at a at a point in our program where the cultural the, the culture reproduces itself through just incredible leadership. Our guys do a great job of um, of ex- displaying this when I'm not around. So it's not a hundred percent on me, and I'm not hundred percent carrying this burden every year. We have we have leaders that are carrying this every year, and so it's reproducing itself through the life of the program. Your team can only go where you have gone as a leader. I love that you're talking about being vulnerable and open uh, about where you need to grow as a leader. I can't think of anything more important that we can do for our players, way more important than lectures like you alluded to. Still, it's not all on you. You have your players out front and leading as well. One of these ways that you build culture is through junkyards, which coaches can check out some videos of junkyards on your website. But can you tell us what the heck is a junkyard and why are these so important to your I am third culture? Yeah, that junkyards are probably my favorite part of, uh, of our, I guess you'd call it the conditioning part of our program. Uh, it's, it's shared suffering. It would be one way to describe it. But we wanted to find a creative way to work out with our guys. And we wanted to find a way to just instill the culture of our program into our guys. So junkyards are uh, on Fridays in the springtime and in the fall. We go outside. We've been doing them on the football field as of late. And one of the unique things about junkyards, 
they're creative and they're, there's a surprise, an element of surprise every time. We don't really tell the guys. So they walk in with a little fear, to be honest with you. But one of the caveats is the coaches have to do all the workouts with the players. Um, so I don't know how much longer that's going to last. I'm 40. I'm running out of <laughs> chiropractic opportunities. Uh, but at the same time, to participate with our guys at that level, I think says a couple things. One, I'm not going to have you go to a place I'm not willing to go. But two, I'm, I'm right here with you. And I need you just as bad as you need me. And the thing about junkyards is you won't make it unless you are pouring into somebody else. If you just self-focus, you'll just you'll die a slow death. I mean, they're grueling, they're exhausting, they're taxing. And it really is a very practical way to say, I want to show you how much energy you will receive if you focus in on your teammates. So they can involve running hills, bear crawling. I mean, you name it, we get creative with them. And they're often uh, in the mornings, under the lights, before it gets, before the sun comes up. And uh, man, they're, they are a fun time. They don't, they don't go on forever because I don't think our bodies could handle it. But it, it really gels us together and really teaches us in a way, what does it mean to be RM third? One of the patterns that I think uh, emerges the more that we kind of dive into your culture and your program is your emphasis on building these kind of experiences to be able to teach your players that the, the values and the, the identity and the DNA of your program. And there's other things that you do, you know, throughout the year, whether it's visiting prisons or it's going on mission trips. You want to talk a little bit, first of all, maybe about kind of where these ideas come from to create experiences for the growth of your guys. And what are some of the things that you continue to do here to this day? Yeah, that's a, that's a great pickup. Um, you know, for whatever reason, I think our world places an, a higher value on, on a self-made man, right? If, if, if I do something alone, all of a sudden I can attach more worth and value to it. And, and what I've said and what I believe is that actually robs you of, I think, a great experience. I mean, I think our, our, our faith is communal. We want to do things together. We want to share things together. That includes the good and that includes the bad. I want to celebrate with my team, but there's times where I have to mourn with my team. Uh, and these shared experiences pull us together uh, in in unique ways that, that just can't happen because there's going to come that moment in basketball where the game's tied, there's two minutes to go, and it's not the talented team that wins. It's not even the best execution team that wins. It's the team that truly trusts each other. And I, and I wish I could give you a stat, but I, I would love to know where we rank in terms of winning close games in the country. You'd have to be up there. I've heard people say, oh, you guys are just lucky. Like we've hit a crazy amount of last second game winners. And I don't attribute that to luck. I don't attribute that to talent. But there is a deep togetherness that, it, that comes out of these shared experiences. When you've gone to the prison and you've spent an entire day there with people who have, who've, most people would say don't deserve a second chance, but you just give them one-on-one -on -one time and you hear their story and you listen to them, you walk away tighter. When you go to the Dominican Republic and you're in one of the poorest places in the Western Hemisphere and you spend a whole week just giving of yourself and your resources, you walk away tighter. You're not thinking about yourself down two minutes and how this is your opportunity for self-glory. You're thinking about other people. And the power of that, what happens when you're on a team, I think just elevates the entire potential for that team. So we're going to try to create these opportunities uh, for these what we would call shared experiences. Because uh, some of the, I think the recipe is that it's, it's a space for vulnerability. And we all know that we grow more when, when we're faced with vulnerability. And, and it's a space for grace. So as a team, we can lean into each other and say, hey, I hear you out. 
you're different than me. I accept that difference. I'm going to work with that difference and I'm going to lean on you and you're going to lean on me. And there's no way to prove it. There's no way to stat it, but I guarantee those things come into play in basketball, especially in in late game situations um, that every coach is looking for. But I think a lot of us sometimes aren't willing to maybe trade time and space for that because those things cost us. Right. I mean, we get, when we go to the prison, that's right in the middle of our conference stretch. Some people say, hey, you could spend your time more wisely, go watch film or practice. But we take an entire day off. We don't practice. We don't watch film and we go to the prison. We don't do it for the trade off. But I can tell you at the end of the day, I feel like our team's tighter when we walk away from an experience like that. Yeah, those are some incredible examples. We, we've talked before on the podcast about some of the things that our coaches have done. I actually um, loved hearing that story about the prison because I, I remember maybe five, six years ago taking an English class of mine when I was still teaching to a faith-based prison where they got to sit down and talk with these people uh, for four or five hours. And it was honestly, even for me as a teacher, one of the most incredible experiences of my life. You know, you do the mission trip. Some some coaches, they may not have access to the either of those opportunities to, to kind of do mission trips. Do you have any other suggestions on just some other things and how you're really intentional in these experiences that to kind of create that vulnerability because I think everybody just typically goes, Oh, let's go bowling as a team, but you're doing where you guys are out serving. So maybe you have some other suggestions for for the high school coaches out there. Absolutely. I mean, I think the opportunities are endless. I I think if you just talk males that, you know, I coach, coach uh, men, we're we're taught to um, maybe shy away from vulnerability with other men. So we're going to try to create opportunities to lean into that. For instance, we do a father-son retreat. Most programs would say, hey, keep the dads away. Uh, you know, we're better off coaching without parents. But we asked one year, what if we brought the dads on the inside? Not, not from a basketball perspective, but brought them on the inside and, and introduced them to all the things we're doing to help grow their son. Well, included in that was to help them communicate, to help them become authentic with each other. Well, that authenticity and that vulnerability has really grown some really strong bonds between our fathers and sons and any kid who's got a good relationship with his dad is going to play better basketball. I mean, that's, that's just common sense. So that doesn't have to be a full blown retreat. That could just be, uh, bring the dads into a practice, let them watch, talk to them afterwards. Um, you know, every one of us has communities that are surrounding us with, with a lot of needs, our basketball camps, kids come to us from all kinds of broken homes and just kind of leaning into those, situations and telling our players be bold enough to share be bold enough to listen sometimes and i think we think we need to have all the answers but just helping our guys understand spend some time listening if you just lend an ear you wouldn't believe how powerful that will be to somebody else but do it together and so man i would say uh, just be creative and dream up opportunities uh, for authenticity and vulnerability in these shared experiences and you'll be amazed at, at what may come to your mind What's the most impactful thing that you do with your players, the father-son retreat? Man, that's that's a good question. We allow our players to kind of share their testimonies uh, and their dads get to hear. Because uh, I was like this. My dad would call me in college and, and ask a million questions, and I had maybe one or two answers. You know, he'd ask about practice. He'd ask about the weekends. And for whatever reason, you know, it was hard to get information out of me. So the whole weekend is geared around our players sharing the growth that is happening in their lives, most of it's spiritual growth. And for the first time, these dads are hearing it and they're loving it and they're connecting with their sons uh, just on a deeper level 
that they ever had. And my goal is that when they walk away, the trajectory of this growth continues. Because at the end of the day, I think probably the most impactful relationship on this earth would be one with our fathers. And and not of all not all of us have great relationships. So if we can we can encourage some of those relationships, we've just seen a lot of positive emotional and even physical health moving forward with our players. Yeah, I think it's an incredible point you just shared there because I think one of my encouragements to coaches on the whole parent dilemma, because that's obviously one of the biggest topics that people want to tackle is uh, as the parent issue, the parent problems. And I just remind coaches, I have to remind myself as well that this, the teenage years, the early college years, this is the hardest time in the parent child relationship. And oftentimes they're really distant and we kind of lose sight of that, you know, and we got to remember that. And so I think it's incredible that you create these experiences to bring them together. I think that was when we started doing these parent experience days with the programs I would visit where the parents would come in, the players would lead them through a practice. What was most surprising about that was just how it gave opportunities for parents to connect with their kids. And so I think it's just awesome. And it's just, I really appreciate you sharing that. Now that's it for the first part of our conversation with Greg. Next week, he'll be diving into more detail on how they build this culture at Indiana Wesleyan. In the meantime, go to IWUhoops.net or check out their team's podcast, The Pursuit. Both are amazing resources to give you a deeper look and understanding of what they have created and how they have done it. If you enjoy this podcast, please... Take 30 seconds to subscribe, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and share this episode with a coach who may need to hear its message.